if you're a student or have been a student in your life, there's something that you may know of uh, that is called Cliff Notes. Uh, it's online now, and essentially it's, it's cheaters, right? So uh, it gives you summaries or like a quick synopsis of a book. Typically, you know it exists because what you do is when you don't do the reading of the book and it's due tomorrow, you go to Cliff Notes and you cheat, you read the whole thing. Uh, in a short summary, and then you ace the quiz. I'm not speaking from experience or anything, but uh, well, I am in, in high school. But that's what you do. It gives you a quick summary because you failed to read it. It gives you the highlights, the main points, and what happens, a couple takeaways. I want to give you a few uh, famous book summaries in a sentence, and maybe you can see what book it is in your head. You don't say it out loud, but I'll, I'll give you the answer. Number one, a boy wizard must defeat a bald, snake-like man, which takes another six books to do. It's Harry Potter. An ambitious, yet misled, science student creates his own human from a cadaver, then abandons his creation, who then destroys everyone in the creator's life. Be Frankenstein. It's very Christmas and cheery, I know. Last one, a hunchback man falls in love with a beautiful woman who is to be wed to another man. No, that is not my life story. That is the hunchback of Notre Dame. Likewise, in texts like Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 5, Jesus tells us very simply that the entirety of the scriptures, all of the Bible is actually about him. He sums up the whole Bible, says it's about me. His person and his work is the focal point of both the Old and the New Testaments. Every story, every prophecy, every person, every shadow, every event, every person involved is a type of Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are both written by the Apostle Paul. And both these are written to a young pastor named Timothy. And both books contain very similar charges. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8 says this, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What's interesting is, if Timothy's a pastor, why does Paul have to remind him of the gospel twice? Two letters, Paul said, hey, remember, this is the main thing. Remember, this is the main thing. And if a young pastor needs to be reminded of the gospel, how much more do we? So today... Paul is going to summarize for us, I believe, the entire Bible in one sentence. He's going to show us three simple truths that summarize the entire Bible, the entire Christian faith, and really what Christmas is all about. So i got three points. They're very simple. I hope you'll follow along. Number one, the saying. The saying. Now, there are many sayings in the world that aren't deserving of full acceptance. Maybe you've heard some of these. Laughter is the best medicine. The customer is always right. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, and probably my favorite, I before E except after C. Yeah. However, these are actually not always that helpful because they're often not trustworthy. They're actually wrong very often. They're not worth banking your life upon. Laughter isn't always as good as Tylenol. If you work in customer service, the customer is actually oftentimes very much wrong. And I can't tell you how many apples I've eaten, and my neck still hurts. Likewise, I before E, except after C, excludes your foreign neighbor, Keith, who found eight ancient glaciers of seismic weight. Doesn't apply all of a sudden. Unlike those things that aren't faithful and aren't true all the time, the Bible searched something else. Look at verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
As if Paul was saying, you, you, can, you can bank your life on one thing, and it's this saying. That you, you can bank your entire life. You can trust in this. There are many things that we hang the hat on of eternity, and Paul says, this, this is it. Paul trumpets here. He trumpets absolute assurance and full fidelity. The reality here is that there is one reality. There is one truth. That we live in a world where there are many boasts of my truth and your truth or his truth or no truth. The Bible is very clear. There's actually one truth. There's one reality. And Jesus Christ claimed to be the truth. He said that I am the way and the truth, right, in John 14. Likewise, Jesus says that the scriptures in John 17, your word is truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth in John 16. So to attempt to divorce Jesus from truth or God from truth is trying to like separate wetness from water. It's essential to what water actually is. So God doesn't just have truth, though that's true. He is the standard of truth. He didn't just have it. He is truth. All that he is is true. Charles Spurgeon said this, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of men are smashed. So anything that doesn't line up with the scriptures is not true, right? It's very simple. Therefore, what the Bible claims for itself then is not an option or a possibility. And as Christians, we hold the scriptures as the only truth. The reality that we know is this book is true whether or not you believe it or not. It's not really about your opinion. It's not about how you feel it matters. This is objectively true. Christianity, then, is not a category of life like drawers in your cabinet. You don't have a work life in the top drawer and a home life in the second drawer, family life and spiritual life. Instead, the truth of Christianity is meant to be seen as a, not drawers in your room, but really the foundation of your house. Christianity is not just, it's not something you just do. It's, it's all that is in your life and your life's built on. All the Bible for all of life, you could say. So the question I want to ask you this evening is this. Does your life filter the Bible, or does the Bible filter you? Those who are in Christ have handed over the manuscript of their life, so to speak, to be rewritten fully by the Word. Whether it be your lifestyle, your thinking, your beliefs, your desires, our call is to make sure our life is biblically trajected. Is it, is it going that direction? Is it lined up here? Is it, is it going here? Is it faithful? If it's not, we should be alarmed. Secondly, authentic believers are like evergreens. They are Christians in all of life, for all of seasons. Because truth is always desired for the Christian. If you're a Christian, you love truth because you love Christ. Aren't you happy to know that the Bible, the word of the eternal God, will never lie to you? Isn't that good news? God will never beat around the bush. He won't disclose things from you. Ah, I'm not going to help you here. He's never going to mislead you, give you bad advice, give you a shaky promise. God's never going to try to be clear. He is clear. Our loving Father tells us the truth, and He takes our hand, doesn't He? His shepherd voice of truth soothes us, it comforts us, it strengthens, and it heals us. The good news of the gospel, friends, is God will always shepherd you towards truth. He will never shepherd you in any other direction. It's always towards truth. So we can take heart in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Christians then are lovers of Christ, so we love his law. What did Jesus say in John? 
If you love me, keep my what? Commandments, right? It's love is the foundation of what we, why we treasure Christ, right? So I urge you to examine your life to see whether you are in the truth. What fools would we be to willingly shut our eyes, ignore all warnings, bypass all joy, and live contrary to truth? And I have great news for you tonight. That the God who never lies has spoken to us. Number two, the Savior. So first the saying, and now the Savior. Look at verse 15 again. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. This is the Apostles' way of compressing the greatest news of 10,000 worlds into one sentence. Uh, Located in the Smithsonian, there's a diamond called the Hope Diamond. It is the largest blue diamond. In case you're wondering, it's also blue. Uh, It was found in the 1600s. It's worth a little bit of money, about $350 million. It is a 45.52 carat diamond. It weighs 10 grams, so that's about two nickels roughly, um, or two sheets of paper. That's about what 10 grams is. Likewise, Paul packs a wealth of information into one sentence, doesn't he? This is a rich sentence with tons of information. Now, if you look at verse 15, look what Paul does. That Christ Jesus came into the world. Why, why does Paul, don't we usually see Jesus Christ? Why does Paul say Christ Jesus? Well, this isn't Jesus' last name. He's not saying uh, Jordan Michael came into the world or Cruz Tom was here. He's not, he's not, he's not replacing his name. Christ isn't his last name. Instead, Christ is his title. Christ means anointed one or the Messiah. And Jesus means Yahweh saved or God saved. That's what it means. And Christ, the Messiah, came into the world as one steps through a door. So as you walk in the door this evening, that's how Christ entered the world. He existed outside the world, and he entered into it. Jesus stepped into time and into space because Jesus existed before he was born. Jesus is God. He's the eternal Son of the Father. As Christians, we believe very simply that Jesus existed eternally with God the Father and with God the Spirit, as God the Son, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, that's Jesus, and the Word was God, right? And all four gospel accounts clearly identify that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. The Bible is very clear. He is our Creator. He's our Judge, our Savior, the Author of life. He's our Ruler, and He's our King. And in short, Jesus is the everlasting God. And what's stunning is that Jesus came to the earth that He created. That he sustains by his very breath, he came as an infant. Now, we have a, a newborn, barely a little over a week old. Can you imagine God, who sustains everything, being a little helpless baby? God in the womb. Jesus Christ is then truly God and truly man. He has two 100%. So if you're a kid in the room this, morning, this evening, remember that Jesus was once a kid. He was like you. He actually became a kid. He was in high school. He was a teenager. He was a kid, right? He actually became a person. And yet he was God. You think your friends are pretty good? Jesus was God. He's a little better than your friends. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the omnipotent became an infant. I want to encourage you this morning, this evening. The incarnation must never lose its luster. Do you remember what happened in September, this last, this last September, do you remember? Someone very famous passed away. It was the queen. Some of you are probably still grieving the queen's death. Did you know how long the wait, the, the, the wait time was to see the queen? Just to walk by the casket. 
It's five miles of a line of people. Just to look at it, just to walk, oh, yeah, that's a casket, all right. Five miles. How many people came to Jesus' birth or even his death? He's the king. He's not just a earthly king. He's the king. He's God. He's self-sufficient, needing nothing, yet he was dependent upon his mother. He's eternal, yet he was born. Jesus Christ is unchanging as God, yet as a man he grew, he aged. He knows all things, yet as man he learned. God became man. It's like, it's like a wealthy king saying, I'm going to become a worm. Even that's just not even close to what Jesus did to become a man. He descended so far. Christ is of infinite worth and glory and power and splendor. What God loves most is his son. It's with him that he is well pleased. And that's who we must likewise see. I'm going to read, read you one of my favorite quotes of all time, probably from a man named Sima Rutherford, who went to jail for being a pastor in the 1700s. He said this. Put the beauty of 10,000,000 worlds of paradise, like the Garden of Eden, into one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ, that one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. I don't know if you guys ever go to the zoo. Um, I like the zoo, but the animals don't really get me that excited. I'm not sure why I like going to the zoo then. It's kind of odd that I go, isn't it? I look at the lions, I look at the bears, and I go, yeah, that's all right. You know what you do? You go, oh, look, he's sleeping. Well, time to move on. Right? We, we literally yawn at lions and bears, right? They bore us. We're not impressed. However, if you were to see that lion or that bear in the wild, would you be impressed? Do you think you would yawn at that tiger you saw in the wild? I don't think you would. I think you would see him rightly. This is how often we see and think of Christ. We, we just, yeah, he's a baby, just whatever. We just, we yawn at him. We think Jesus is tame. Instead, we must see him as he is. We, if we would see him rightly, we would stagger in fear and in praise. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, that we yawn because we are blind because of sin and Satan. The eyes of our hearts are blinded and we turn away. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins. We are dead to God. We are corpse-like. We just don't, there's just nothing there. There's no track, there's nothing. He just, we yawn at God. So we need the work of Christ. Perhaps tonight is the night of God's mercy for you. For the Christian, we must remember that even some of the most openly hostile atheist scholars will all acknowledge, most are saying, Jesus Christ existed. And what are you going to say? Yes and amen. We know he was a real person. We know he walked the earth. We know he was real. We, we know that. He's a historical person. We know that. To deny that would be absurd. But this Christ has entered your heart by his spirit, according to Romans chapter 8. He, he, he's, not, he's not just out there. By faith, he's in your heart. He strengthens your walk. He renews your affections for him. He enlightens your understanding. He cleanses your faith. Let me give you good news for tonight when you lay down. You will never walk alone in the Christian life. Isn't that assuring? You could have nobody, but you'll never be alone. And why is that? What does Matthew 1.23 say? 
Jesus is Emmanuel. What does that mean? God is with us, right? He's with you. So may God refresh you this evening to the majesty of Christ. We do not love him as we ought, but may God strengthen our hearts to do so, to put it into our hearts to help us. Lastly, the salvation. The saying, the Savior, and the salvation. Verse 15, to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is why Jesus came, friends. Christmas is about this text right here. God sent his son into the world because God loved the world, right? John three sixteen. It's a familiar truth at the heart of Christmas. Jesus was born to suffer and born to die for sinners. This is why Christians speak of the word saved, right? We use the word saved a lot. It's Christian lingo. We just say saved, and it comes from a text just like this, right? Came to save sinners. And when we speak of being saved, what Christians mean is we are saved from the judgment of God for our sins. We're not just saved from a bad life or from feeling lonely or empty. Though those things happen, Jesus came primarily to save us from judgment, from sin, sin's sin's punishment. Luke chapter 5 verse 32 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, Kale, understood. Well, what is sin? Well, according to my son and our little catechism we do, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. First John 3, 4 says this, that sin is lawlessness. It's very simple. It's not being or doing what God requires. Um, I used to work at a courthouse in Illinois. I probably mentioned that a couple times. Uh, never once did I go to a court, a court date. Um, and I, I'd sit right by the judge, so I, I was on the good side. Or I, I, I got to watch all the bad people. I'd sit right here. Never once did I go to a court date or the judge never read the charges. He always, even if it was thick, he would go, all right, Tim again, let's read it again. Like we'd always read, why is he here? What is this for? We'd always read why he was here. It is necessary then for us to simply hear our charges for what sin is. We, the word sin and sinners, I've even seen TV shows say, oh, well, he, well he's a sinner. It's like, well, okay, are you even using that word rightly? Well, they often just call the worst people sinners and not regular people. However, if we, just, if we just look simply at God's Ten Commandments, we can know that we have sinned, right? We can, if you've ever told a lie, if you've stolen, if you've not obeyed your parents fully, we've always done that, right? We never, we, we always clean our room on the first time, right? If you've ever desired something that's not yours, I once met a lady at McDonald's here in Excelsior, and I, and I witnessed to her, and I asked her, Mary, have you ever told a lie before? No, I don't think so. She was 60s. It's a long time, truth telling. Have you ever, like, disobeyed your parents? No. Maybe, like, jumping in the mud. Really? Is that your first lie? Second lie? So she, 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 she was impeccable, but just looking at God's sin, we know we have sinned. We don't love God with our all hearts. We don't honor him as we ought. We do covet. We do lie. We do fall short. And you guys know this. I want to read you something that should be very, that should awaken you. I hope that it does. Thomas Watson once said that one of the most sorrowful and fearful conditions of a sinner is what he calls a secure sinner. What he means is it's possible to be a non-Christian and feel secure in your condition. I mean, people can have a conscience and say, well, my conscience doesn't bother me. Why are they all bugged out for? Why are you so weeping? Why are you bothered about lying? Mine doesn't bother me like that. It's possible to not be bothered by it. 
Thomas Watson writes this, A secure sinner provides for his body, but neglects his soul. Like one that waters his flowers, but never minds his jewels. The repeating hearing does nothing and changes nothing. Uh, in the L.A. Times in April of 2022, uh, there are these peregrine falcons, these uh, stunningly fast falcons. They're extremely fast. And they roosted on top of this bell tower at uh, UC Berkeley. And if you know what bell towers do, they typically ring a bell. So they're very, very loud. Well, the falcons got so comfy up there, even though it would ring every hour, that they actually had little chicks up there. They had five. Oh, so cute. I know. On top of a bell tower. These falcons, they weren't shocked. They weren't alarmed. It's, yeah, it's just a bell. It sounds, actually, we like the sound. It's actually beautiful. They had much comfort despite the ringing bells. I fear that it's common for many people to be this way with hearing about sin. That we can be tone deaf. We can hear about sin and God's judgment and the cross and think, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm roosting. You need to be raised from the dead. You need to be given new life. You need to be born again, the Bible says. Leonard Ravenhill said this, that Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to the world to become man, born of a woman, born under the law, in full, perfect obedience. See, Jesus never disobeyed. If you're of any age, you have disobeyed. You, you, you're not perfect. That's, 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 that's our problem, right? But Jesus' life earned heaven. His life was perfect. But on the cross, Jesus was counted as a sinner. Now, this is a, a, another school analogy. If you've ever, this is cheating, but if you've ever uh, plagiarized, like, right, you're supposed to write paper, what do you do? Well, that's pretty good. Copy, paste, slap on there. I'll change one word so it's not plagiarism all the way, right? You take credit for what's not yours, right? Well, on the cross, Jesus was credited. He was given your record. He was counted as if he lived your life. He was credited with, with the sins of all who would ever trust him. So that you could be counted as righteous. Jesus' perfect life is credited to your account. So when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. It's, it's removed. He sees perfection, perfect righteousness. For he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I implore you, to, I encourage you to come to Christ. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come from Revelation. To turn from your sins in sorrow and confession. And to pursue Christ by faith alone, by trusting in Christ. That by believing in Christ, you may have eternal life. The good news is that Jesus comes in our misery with great mercy, doesn't he? Do you have guilt? Jesus has an abundant amount of grace for you. Our pitiful condition comes with a powerful Christ. One of my favorite hymns says this. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Do you wish to find your name on his hands? The Bible says to repent and to trust Christ. He will never cast you out. He summons you to know him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. Well, how gently? Well, like a babe in a manger, isn't it? How gentle he is with sinners. 
Verse 15 again. Of whom I am the foremost. The greatest Christian was once the strongest person. If you remember who Paul was before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he hated Jesus. He hated the church. He was anti-Christian, you could say. His rap sheet makes our sins look like Little League and Major League Baseball. Oh, you lied? I killed Christians. Yeah, I'm a pretty big deal. That was Saul. And yet for every great sinner stands a great Savior. The good news is that when Jesus was born and died, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeated the grave, and rose forevermore on the third day. Hebrews 13.8 says this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So when you read your Bible, you say, man, Jesus was so kind to sinners. He was so good to them. He's not changed. It's not comforting. We change all the time. But he's the same. He has love for all your maladies. He has care for all your sins. He has patience for all your folly, power for your every foe. In closing, John Newton, who was once a slave trader, turned pastor and hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So everyone who knows their heart knows that they, like Paul, are the foremost of sinners. But I want to encourage you this evening. Don't just dwell upon your sin. That will bring deep sorrow. Instead, dwell upon Christ. Look at your sin rightly. Lord, I've fallen short again today or tonight or this evening or tomorrow. To look at things you have not done or things you have done. Instead, look at Christ. For every look at self, it's been said, take ten looks at Christ. So in Christ this Christmas, every Christmas, every day until glory, you stand as righteous as the sun. There's never a day where your sins are charged against you. There's no condemnation. My prayer for you tonight is that the sweetness and the majesty of Jesus Christ will become fresh to you, either for the first time or fresh all over again. Martin Luther said this, When Satan tells me that I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.